Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Yeager. And I'm Lisa Carrico. We're program directors for Missouri Humanities. And we're so excited to bring you our latest episode of Eat, Think, and Be Merry. This podcast is part of our 2022 signature series. And throughout this year, we'll feature food thinkers and other special guests with exciting, inspiring, and downright delicious stories as we consider the role food plays in shaping our society, how it connects us to each other, to our own pasts and identities, and to the world around us. We invite you to feed your mind and join us around the table as we host conversations that explore Missouri's foodways and edible history to celebrate the breadth and depth of Missouri's cultural heritage, natural environment, and the relationship between food and the human experience. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We are so excited to bring you our latest episode, one that I think you'll really enjoy because it's about something we can all relate to. Even if you are not someone who cooks a lot, I'm sure if you did some digging, you'd find a cookbook somewhere in your possessions. And that cookbook, no matter what the recipes may contain, offers a unique kind of cultural heritage. This topic is so interesting. And Lisa, if you remember, what started us down this rabbit hole of cookbooks as cultural heritage was the fact that as we were planning our signature series this year and starting to coordinate topics to explore, we kept hearing mention of church cookbooks in particular and how important they are to a community. Then we had that meeting with Chef Rob from Bullrush, an Ozarks-focused restaurant here in St. Louis. And he talked about all of the research he's done utilizing historic cookbooks. And we realized just how multifaceted a cookbook could actually be, more so than just a book containing recipes. That they were their own unique kind of history book, completely indicative of the time and place they were written and the people they represent. It definitely gets you thinking a bit more critically and creatively about what can be considered cultural heritage. Cultural heritage is defined in many ways. It includes assets, both tangible and intangible, of a group or society that is inherited from past generations. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, known as UNESCO, goes even deeper, saying cultural heritage is the legacy which we receive from the past, which we live in the present, and which we will pass on to future generations, and is not limited to monuments and collections of objects. It's also comprised of living expressions inherited from our ancestors, such as oral traditions, performing arts, social manners, rituals, festive events, knowledge and practice related to nature and the universe, and knowledge and techniques linked to traditional crafts. When you dig into these definitions, it's clear that cookbooks, recipes, and even the ingredients all fit in. They tell us what foods were consumed at the time, the food trends, the kinds of common ingredients one might have in their kitchen, even the kitchen gadgets that might have been new and all the rage. Looking at a community cookbook or church cookbook, they also tell us what kinds of foods were most consumed at home or at gatherings, further supporting our claim 
that we keep repeating throughout this series of food being a connector. It's so true. So turning to our conversation for this episode, what can you tell us about our guest and why we approached her for this topic? Absolutely. Our guest for this episode is Suzanne Corbett. She is an award-winning writer, producer, and food historian, and is the author of The Gilded Table, A Culinary History of Missouri, Foodways, and the Iconic Dishes from the Show Me State, and Push Carts and Stalls, the Soulard Market History Cookbook. Suzanne's articles have appeared in local and national publications. She serves as a Foodways interpreter with the National Parks and has presented programs on American food history for historic sites and organizations such as the Missouri History Museum, the Victorian Society of America, and the Center for French Colonial Studies. Suzanne served two terms on the Missouri Grape and Wine Board and is the writer-producer of the Telly Award-winning documentary short Vintage Missouri, 200 Years of Missouri Wine. I wanted to feature Suzanne for this episode because I felt she really encapsulated so many facets of food history. Through her writing and her interpretation, she connects food to past and present and shows its importance to community and cultural heritage. Her background fits perfectly for this conversation. I know I'm excited to hear more, so let's dig in. Suzanne, welcome to the Eat, Think, and Be Merry podcast, and thank you so much for being a willing participant for another Missouri Humanities program. I love to eat, think, and drink, or drink, eat, and think. (laughs) Don't we all? Um, So Suzanne, tell us a little bit about your background um, because it's, it's been an interesting journey, if I remember correctly. So how did you get to where you are today? Oh my goodness. Well, when I was in school and grade school and high school, I wanted to be an actress, but that kind of went to the wayside, but actually food has always been a passion for me. Even as a little kid, mother couldn't bring home a cake mix without me baking it out. So, uh, my career actually began as a caterer, as a confectioner, and uh, that turned into teaching in the uh, St. Louis Community College, uh, home economics division back in the day when they called home economics, home economics. And uh, that led into working with uh, writing, which was a natural progression with presentation work. But I had a student, which was a pivotal part of my career, who was a curator at Jefferson Barracks Historic Site. And she approached me and asked, if you could come up with some kind of a food program that could relate to our Civil War weekend, it would be great. You could come demonstrate, we'd support you, vice versa. And if you came in a costume, you could go to the ladies tea for free. And I thought, oh my goodness, I could be an actress again. So I was able to go out and sew up a costume and I decided to bake bread because bread was an easy thing to do. It was uh, easy for me and it was visual. It was historically accurate to the site I was at. Little did I know at the time that that was gonna define my career or launch my career as an artist and baker and as a food historian because I then began doing more and more historical interpretation at at history sites. And through the years, I've contributed to uh, many sites across the country, including having the honor of uh, working with the Smithsonian 
when they've toured their traveling exhibit of Seeds of Change, which was 500 years of uh, Colombian uh, exchange with the seeds and all of the food exchanges that happened in 1492 and beyond. So I guess that answered that. <laughs> I would say so. It's okay. so interesting. I, I, and I think that's people who have um, kind of had an unexpected journey, I think are some of the most interesting stories. And what I really love about your work is that you combine both that applied side of food. So cooking and recipe development, and like you said, teaching with the research and historical side, you've written cookbooks, you've written history books, um, and some that, you know, are a little bit of both. So I think that a lot of your writing is, it's such a great representation of Missouri's edible history, which is, you know, what we're really exploring a lot of this year during our signature series. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what led you to food history and food writing. You talked a little bit about that kind of happenstance student who asked you to do some civil war interpretation, um, but but talk about how that was kind of the jumping off point and, and what other journeys you took to become this food historian and a food writer. Well, foodways, living history is what really launched my career into writing and presentation work. That's what sent me back to school to earn a BA and an MA in media communications with production management as a master's emphasis. Because I want to be able to tell those stories because the more I worked at sites and learned the history and learned the stories of the cooks and the communities that revolved around those particular uh, sites and the foodways and the techniques that were at risk of being lost forever, the more I wanted to be able to record that both in writing and in presentation work and also within the media uh, broadcast systems that I've worked with in the past. Um, it's a love that just, it just grew. And the more you learned, the more you discovered what you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's just so fascinating about food history because wherever you go, food is the connector. It connects people, it, it drives people to cross oceans to find spices. It, it, in, it encourages people to find new sources where streams might've dried up and the grass is greener literally on the other side so you can pasture your livestock better. Uh, it's what includes people to uh, join together and make a settlement, a permanent settlement. And that's really what it's all about is being able to find that cohesive connect, that, that connector that binds us together with the food and the drink that allows us to grow and flourish. And I think too, it's such an interesting genre of writing, you know, so it's, you know, it's not like writing um, just a story. It's, it's, um, it's experiential too. So, so say you have a theme or a topic in mind when you're approaching a new writing project, um, how do you get started and what's the research process like? Because like I said, it's food history. When we think of food, we think of something we experience firsthand. We taste it, we touch it. Um, we smell it, you know, it's very experiential. So, but you're, you're taking it and putting it into words. So talk about that process of, of food writing and writing in this kind of genre. 
Well, food writing, now there's two different ways of looking at this. You could look at the classic academic app applications where it's just history on top of history on top of history. And that's not a bad thing. However, I've always had my writing to be driven through the um, process of uh, the recipes. It's all about the recipes. And that's what really drives the project for me. Once in a while, there'll be the site that I'm attracted to. But then again, once I'm at the site, it is the recipes, the commodities, the local specialties that drives me to want to know more to, to write about that. Uh, a, a great example of uh, recipes that drove a project was the, the project I did for the Campbell House Museum. They had an 1840s handwritten recipe collection. Think of it as your grandma's recipe box. Virginia Campbell hand wrote all of these little recipes out. Many of them that I discovered that she copied verbatim from uh, cookbooks of the time, just like we would do today. You would clip and paste on your Facebook page or your Instagram and say, oh, I like that recipe. Let's write that down. Well, the same thing was happening in the 19th century and, and earlier. Uh, of course, the recipes are a little bit more archaic. For example, there was a bread recipe that says flour, water, yeast, bake. <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> and that would prompt me to be like, be I have to know the oven temperature, that. you know, <laughs> like... We wouldn't be able to deal with that. However, <laughs> however, if you had a list of ingredients, there was the assumption made that you had a set skill, mm. that you knew what to do with that. You knew mm -hmm. what that meant. So those people would say, oh, I just saw grandma just make bread. She just put flour in a bowl and added milk or water and added some yeast and mixed it and she baked it. Well, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Now, my background, I was very lucky to have older parents. My mother grew up at a time which was pre-depression and her family, actually her mother and father were born in the late 1870s. So I had a different set of skills that I acquired or other people didn't. So when I was able to go through vintage recipes, I understood what a slow or a fast fire was. Uh, I knew what a teacup full of this or that was. And I knew exactly how large a lump of butter the size of a walnut. Mm. So they gave you a little bit more, it gave me a little bit more of a grounding that I was able to then launch and do more and more of this research. But one of the best pieces of advice that I heard when I first got into doing food history was from Barbara Wheaton, who was the food historian at Radcliffe University in Massachusetts, she told me, get used to reading other people's mail. Mm. I asked, what are you talking about? She goes, letters of people of the period. They'll start talking about what they ate, how they enjoyed it. And you'll learn so much from those little small things forgotten. And it's a piece of advice that I still use. I, I go through archives, looking through letters and old periodicals, uh, advertisements of the age, also a great, great source. And it doesn't have to be 19th century. It could be of uh, maybe 
two years ago. You'd be surprised, particularly with some of the influxes in prices and materials that are coming into the country based on transportation. And that's a whole subject in and of itself on how transportation affected our food, particularly in Missouri with the railroad going across the state just on beef alone. So <laughs> anyway, it's fascinating. You, you just want to look in all these little places because you never know what kind of gem you're going to find. I love that. And I think that's a great transition to kind of the meat of this, this conversation, which is this idea of, of cookbooks, of recipes, ingredients. Um, and, and I love what you said about the, the recipe that was, you know, flour, yeast, water, you know, whatever, and bake it because, bake it. you know, and how that's indicative of, of, of the time. And, and I think that, you know, as we're looking into cookbooks, especially community cookbooks, um, you know, these really personal collaborative cookbooks where a lot of what you're seeing is family recipes. And, and I think to myself, you know, I have a recipe like that. That's my mom's spaghetti and meatballs, which was my grandmother's spaghetti and meatballs. And instead of, you know, her, you know, copying the recipe that she's got and giving it to me, I jotted it down on the back of a piece of notebook paper and it's on my fridge and it's, you know, and it's chicken scratch, you know, but, but because I'd seen it so many times, like I really just need to know the ingredients and I don't need to know how to prepare it because I've done it before. So I think that that's an interesting kind of indicator of, of family relationships, you know, that that's indicative of, you know, the fact that people were, were making this recipe so often that like, they just needed an, a reminder of the ingredients and they knew what to do with the rest. And, and I love that. That's such a, an interesting little snippet. Um, so, so shifting, shifting gears to this, this cookbooks and recipes conversation. Um, let's talk about the cookbooks that you've been involved in creating. Um, and I imagine creating a cookbook is quite different than the more storytelling formats of other publications you produce, you know, telling the story of a time, even just, even if it's telling the story of food at the time, you know, recipe development or recipe research. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think that when I approach a subject, I divide it into sections. Uh, for example, St. Genevieve, uh, the French colonial foods in the region, which thankfully is finally beginning to get that attention that they so richly deserve. Uh, you have to look at the types of food that they brought with them, the foods that they were missing, that they used local ingredients to then recreate a dish that was similar to what they enjoyed in France, but it, it became a new dish here. Pralings is a great example of that. In France, it was almonds. Here, it's pecans. Oh, um, I didn't know that. One That's of the first amazing. things that the French Canadians came, and those are the ones who came down the Mississippi and through Missouri here, uh, was apples. It's one of the first fruit trees they planted because it was such an important part of their culinary traditions. So they couldn't wait to plant them. Not so much pears, the Germans embrace those because they have a saying, he who plants pears, plants for his heirs. So it takes a long time <laughs> to get those pears going, mm -hmm. but apples can turn around a little bit faster. But um, anyway, uh, 
when you look at a particular segment, uh, then I'll take a look more at the um, basics of just what those recipes were uh, formed on, uh, cooked with, uh, when they were served, how they were served. Was it a celebration? Was it everyday fare? Uh, I always try to dig up everyday fare because it's a lot of things that are overlooked because uh, we tend to reserve a little bit of extra homage to that Thanksgiving turkey or to that pork steak we eat for the summertime barbecue. But what you had for dinner last night, which for me was a tuna fish salad sandwich, isn't going to make you know headlines, but it's an important part of a particular cuisine. Um, and those are the types of things I, I try to look for. The ordinary along with those things that were extraordinary and mm -hmm. how those particular items were then used and then passed down and how a particular recipe would change. Mm -hmm. And community cookbooks are an excellent way to track that, particularly those that are produced by church ladies or community groups, uh, ethnic groups that are trying to just not preserve their recipes, but use them as just not a fundraiser, but also as a tool to um, get their identity out in the community to show people, this is who we are. And when you do that, food is the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. There is a local group in St. Louis, which is the Turkish American Association Society that every so often they will do dinners or cooking classes for ladies. And it's with the mindset of showing people who they are through their food, because you invite people in to share a plate, to break bread with you, and you'll have a friend. You show them who you are and invite them in to share. It's marvelous and cookbooks and community dinners, which many of these cookbooks are driven through, look at the Greek festivals. Mm -hmm. It is one of the best ways and one of the best tools to document how food has changed in a region. And I, and I love that you brought up the church cookbook because, you know, if I'm being honest, the, the real inspiration behind Missouri Humanity is wanting to have this conversation about cookbooks and, and food writing as cultural heritage was this idea of the church cookbook. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm, I, I'm sure it would be hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't have at least one church cookbook in their possession. Even if you're not somebody that cooks a lot, it's almost like a rite of passage, you know, for being a homeowner or being an adult, even, you know, I remember I received one as a wedding shower gift. It's, you know, it was the church cookbook of, of my, the gift givers, you know, uh, community. So, and I think that, like you said, food being a connector the church cookbook, or or like like we said, a community cookbook, a neighborhood cookbook, um, is so is so um, important, especially if you consider the time period. You know, so so it being a a vital part of representing a person or a family or a place. Um, the ingredients used in these simple recipes are representative of the things you could find easily at the time, because I think when you're looking at a community cookbook or a church cookbook, you're not looking at a perfectly curated, beautifully, uh, you know, picturesque cookbook like you'd find on a bookstore shelf or done by a celebrity chef. It's it's a spiral bound, you know, 
typed up cookbook put together by you know, a community. And these are recipes that were important enough for somebody to submit to want to share to the community. And oftentimes those are just your favorite things to make or your favorite things to bring to a gathering. Um, so I really like what it represents. And I wanted that to be our jumping off point for talking about this topic of, of cookbooks as cultural heritage in and of itself. Well, spiral cookbooks, I'm glad you mentioned the term spiral because mm -hmm. you look at a lot of those spiral books you're not gonna see any photos at all. You might see some line drawings, but a lot of them are hand uh, typed and just put together, but it also will document through those pages what were popular or what new inventions were the latest thing. You look at uh, some of these community books from the 1930s. The, the big thing is icebox pies, icebox mm -hmm. cakes, because everybody was having an icebox or refrigeration became more of a norm so it it drove that chiffon mm -hmm. cakes when the hand mixer became huge you probably and i know you, you probably will not remember cake uh cake box uh, a, a cake mix would mm -hmm. give would give ingredients as um mix it together and then beat 100 times mm -hmm. and that was an ingredient uh, uh that was a direction a direction that for people who didn't have that electric mixer. So you, you see how those things kind of change. Now, I, when I was a new bride, I was a new bride during the fondue and bunt cake rage. Oh yeah. So every little cookbook you found had tons of bunt cake recipes or fondues. But if you want to take that up a little bit further, look at nonprofit books, just not the community church book. Nonprofit books, particularly the junior leagues are marvelous books that show just not the region, but also a slice of a different style of societies and how they're relating to the city through their nonprofit uh, charitable uh, mandates that those ladies were doing through raising funds through those books. Many of those books are just absolutely superb. And, and your your mention of looking at these recipes and these little little notes about, you know, you have a lot of bunt cakes, you have a lot of cake mixes, you have a lot of um, chiffon cakes, and those are indicative of the newfangled yeah. thing, you know, a, a, an elaborate bunt pan or the fondue pot. I mean, we, we have a, an episode in a, one of our um, podcast that we partner with um, KCUR. It's called Hungry for Mo. And there's an episode all about the crock pot and how the crock pot wasn't all the rage. And, and oh, I yeah. think that that's, that's just the, the, the perfect example of food and these recipes, these cookbooks being such an integral part of telling the story of a time in history, how much we can learn about a time or a place or a people by the foods they consumed or cooked or the recipes that they shared. Um, and I know this is kind of a loaded question, but I want to know as someone who's done so much research and written and taught on the subject, how do you see the role of cookbooks as representative of local history and cultural heritage? What do we learn from them kind of on a broader level? You learn who you were. We learn who we were, where we were, what our mindsets were. Were things going well? Were things a little bit more depressed uh, economically? Uh, it, it shows just not beyond the trends, but it just 
shows that slice of diversity of people coming and going. Who's cooking? Why are they cooking? Uh, where they're cooking at? Uh, is it the backyard? The out? Uh, is, it, is it a a uh, church supper? Mm-hmm. Is it a curry dish and donate to a food pantry, a soup kitchen, or whatever? Many of these books will give you hints on just what was going on at the time that they were written, mm-hmm. and that's that 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 gives you so much. It, it's a huge slice of cultural history. It's just not women's history, but it's cultural history mm-hmm. that we're able to take and then use later to examine an overall picture of what a community or what a people uh, or time was doing through the lens of the uh, skillet, let's say. <laughs> I love that. And, and I love that, um, you know, as we were, we as being Missouri Humanities, were thinking through planning this this theme this year of this eat, think, and be merry, Missouri's foodways and edible history. One of the biggest goals was to find out how food connects us um, to our past, to our identities, and to the world around us. And this is, you know, this conversation and and looking at cookbooks or letters that people write back and forth about food, or or you know, I even think, you know, in more modern times even just texting with a friend about a great restaurant we had experienced, you know, just how much food and the experience of food and cooking plays into our everyday lives. There's, I just don't think there's a better example. Well, food particularly has become a focus uh, more so today than any other time I feel Mm -hmm. in some of the research that I've had, basically because of what we have in our hands to document. Instagram, have you ever been to a restaurant where somebody is not taking a photo of their plate before they eat it? <laughs> Phones uh, eat first. <laughs> that, I mean, photos first, eat, we'll eat last. Uh, that speaks volumes. It, it, it truly does. Mm-hmm. On just where we're going. Uh, we have an abundance, even though food has gotten expensive. We still define ourselves today on who we are by what we eat. 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we didn't do that. It, we, were more dis, we were more concerned with having enough to eat, not so much what it was. But now we define ourselves on what we're eating because it, it tells us who we are. It, it, it always did, mm-hmm. but it does define whether or not we're being healthy or we're being socially uh, acceptable because we're not eating this or that, or we're eating this or that. It, it's it's really an interesting uh, mix on just how food has become um, just a, a social and uh, a tool that you just need to for life because we all have to eat. Mm-hmm. But it 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 becomes political, mm-hmm. uh, and it's and food has been politicized forever. I mean, whoever controls a food source uh, has got a lot of power. And I think we see that now with uh, the Ukraine, with the wheat that's now becoming a big issue. It was the Ukrainian wheat, which was called Russian red at the time, that helped make the Midwest a um, bread basket. It was the winter wheat that was, was grown in Kansas, right across the Missouri border. It was the wheat that 
was grown in the 18th and early 19th centuries in Missouri and in the Illinois country that defined Missouri as a milling capital and, and a major supplier. We were the breadbasket at the time before it shifted to Montana and the Dakotas, mm -hmm. Kansas. And you bring up a really important point about this shift in history from food being a necessity to food being something to be enjoyed and then something to be shared. And I think, and I'm not sure in what order, but, you know, we always think about, you know, how many times do we, even if it's just a casual, like having a friend over to hang out, we're always thinking about if we should serve food, you know, what do we have that we can serve them? Every special occasion, we're always planning a menu. Um, and I think that's been true for, for decades, if not potentially centuries, but I love this idea of, of this shift from food as necessity to food being something we are allowed to enjoy and not just have calories to live. So where did you, is there any place that we kind of see this shift or anything that happened? Um, was it the fact that people were moving more and we were introducing new ingredients or new things to experience? And, you know, at what point, you know, have you found anything to support this shift or, or what might've happened? Well, I think we've always enjoyed food. Mm -hmm. When if, if you had the food and you had an abundance of it, you enjoyed it, you celebrated it. I think the difference through time was the abundance and the celebration has become an indulgence. Mm. And, and there's a difference between enjoyment and overindulgence. Mm -hmm. um, because then one becomes desensitized uh, when food becomes scarce because it's always been there. It was always available. Uh, and, and that's something that is being readdressed today just because of the situations with the, with the uh, supply chain that we're experiencing today due to the pandemic. Uh, but it's something that we've all encountered, our grandparents, our grandparents, our great, great, greats, because we all ate seasonably. We all ate with the seasons because once it, once the tomatoes were gone, they're gone. Mm -hmm. You only butchered your hogs during the fall, unless you had, uh, or winter, I should say, when it was cold enough, it was easier to do because everything would spoil. We didn't have a good way to, uh, protect things outside of salting and curing and smoking could only do so much of that uh, and the value of uh, a lot of the cat the cattle and things was more for um, milk mm -hmm. and for their uh, draft abilities not so much for meat that came later on to be a a source a viable commodity where you could have uh a half a pound hamburger and not worry about I mean that was I mean that talk about indulgence I mean honestly it's just I mean think about a muffin a muffin a muffin pan was small it got a little bigger and by the turn of the 21st century you've had these monster monster uh, muffins and things so things have upsized because of the availability and I think we have been desensitized because of that and that's also reflected in some of the the culinary writings and advertising and recipes that you see uh, just uh, 
an indulgence in many recipes or in, in ingredients that mm -hmm. uh, would have normally been a little bit more uh, rationed or, or saved for something special. Yeah, I like that because it's, you know, obviously today you can walk into most grocery stores um, and get most produce that you can think of because we have the ability to ship from elsewhere most meats, most dairy products. And we don't think about seasonable things. You know, I think there's a bit of a shift to, to shopping seasonally or a push to shopping seasonally and local, but um, it's an interesting point that you bring up about, you know, this enjoyment and indulgence in that, you know, back when you could only eat seasonably, you might've been, you know, looking forward to getting tomatoes. You know, you had to go so many years or so many months without eating tomatoes. So it was something to look forward to. And that was how you enjoyed food back in the day. It was, you know, looking forward to something that you might not be able to get in December, you know? So, so that's the enjoyment aspect. Whereas for us, it might just be, you know, I think, like you said, this turn to indulgence because we can enjoy most foods, you know, anytime we're able because they're available at a grocery store. Um, I think it's the, also the appreciation of a particular product. Mm -hmm. uh, strawberries, for example, that's a great example. Strawberry season was short this year just because of the weather. Um, but a homegrown strawberry, particularly in certain parts of Missouri because of the terrar, have different flavors. Mm -hmm. uh, and a fresh strawberry is going to taste, a homegrown strawberry, a local strawberry, it's going to taste entirely different than what a strawberry ship grown wherever it is in the middle of December. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just going to have a different flavor. And it's, I think it's the appreciation. And one of my concerns is that some of the classical um, seasonal items that we embrace like strawberries and tomatoes and maybe asparagus uh, some of the wilder items such as uh, persimmons and mm. some of the nuts and things of that nature uh, that they have a, a different flavor in season and it's so many people have not been exposed to those flavors mm -hmm. uh, it's it's learning to change one's palate and to actually taste and think about and savor those flavors. Mm -hmm. So you know the difference, so you can appreciate mm -hmm. some of those items that are coming across your plate mm -hmm. in or out of season, you'll know the difference. So kind of with all that said and talking about, you know, these ingredients and, and the research you've done for your books and for recipes, um, what are some of your favorite things to highlight about Missouri's food heritage? Um, that could be good things, bad things, um, anything that might be surprising to people to learn, you know, other than your typical, you know, let's talk about the, the ice cream cone and the hot dog, you know, like things that we've, we've heard over and over again, or toasted ravioli and gooey butter cake. You know, we all know that um, a lot of those have ties to, to Missouri, to St. Louis, to this area, but um historically speaking, or, or through your research, what has been kind of your favorite things to find out? The unexpected, mm -hmm. the diversity that is out there. Uh, Missouri is so much more than barbecue and gooey butter cake and toaster crafts. I mean, we, we really are. It's a, a good example in the 20th century, the things that are 
that, that really kind of changed just how everything went. Uh, if you look at uh, Springfield, a great example of diversity there is cashew chicken. Who would have thought you'd have cashew chicken in the middle of the, the foothills of the Ozarks? Mm -hmm. uh, barbecue in general, barbecue is something that we all talk about in Kansas City, but my goodness, there's a variance of barbecue all across the state, particularly down in the southern regions of the state who have to tip their hat to their brothers and sisters who were stoking the fires in Arkansas, because many of those Arkansans came up with the um, uh, techniques that are celebrated right now in Kansas City and St. Louis and points beyond within the state for great smoke and barbecue. Uh, but looking at the commodities also, uh, I always think of the surprise items that were unexpected. I never really thought about the joys of a pork tenderloin sandwich until I was in Hannibal for the first time and experienced it at a little roadside diner, the Mark Twain dinette. Uh, <laughs> A pork, a pork cutlet as large as a dinner plate on a small little bun that just kind of hangs out like wings. One of the best sandwiches you could ever have. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So there's all different types of things that you discover, and particularly if, when you go further back, um, even with the beverages, mm -hmm. beer in general, my goodness, I have come up with so many different references for different small breweries and the byproducts that the brewers would sell, which was the yeast that made everybody start to bake mm -hmm. easier than uh, before. It, it made it much easier. Now they may not have had an oven, so you had to go down to your local baker to have your bakery, your bread baked, which was a service many bakeries did at the time. You could bring your breads, you could bring your hams, you could bring your larger joints of meat to be baked at, at baker shops across the state or, or anywhere really. Mm -hmm. So are those are those little things that you learn along the way that just makes you sit back and go, hmm, I wanna know more. Yeah, that's really or interesting. I, I didn't know that about food. bakers. Yes. Super interesting. Um, and I want to give you a chance. So I know you've got some, you're, you're a very, very busy woman, <laughs> um, but I know that you've got some cool events or, or features coming up this year. I'd love for you to take some time to talk about your event in September that you're involved in, the Farm Table to Gilded Table event. So tell us all about it. Um, and is there anything else you're working on that you'd like to, to tease a little bit? Well, the Farm Table to the Gilded Table is... Uh, what we're calling the grand finale of Grant's Bicentennial. This is says Grant's 200th birthday, which has been celebrated across the country. And um, I am just delighted that the National Park System and the Campbell House Museum have joined together to do a joint celebration based on the food that Ulysses says Grant enjoyed at his home at Whitehaven when he was there and as a guest at the Campbell House back in 1875. So we say, come and eat, drink, and party like it was 1855 at Whitehaven or 1875 at the Campbell House. So we're going to feature four chefs 
at each site, people like uh, Lou Rook, Casey Fires, um, just it's, it's going to be just a wonderful event where each group of chefs will recreate their interpretation of food of the era. We'll have drink associated with the era. So we might have ciders and beers. Um, Robert Campbell's famous Roman punch. I was gonna say there's gotta be a punch involved if it's Oh the yes. Yeah, well, it, you know, it, well, Roman punch was a cleanser. It was a citrus, uh, consider it a, a, a citrus slushy that hmm. uh, back in the Gilded Age, if you drank something, the thought was that if you had or drank something that was citrusy, that it would magically make more room in your stomach so you could eat more. Oh. Yeah, so grab some lemonade for lunch and who knows. That's going to be a great event and the proceeds uh, help fund the uh, uh, grants, managers of the, the National Park System at the grant site and the Campbell House Museum. So what date is that? September? September 25th you know, in lieu of having a, a registration link or a website at the time, um, how can people find out more about that in the meantime? Well, I would say keep an eye out on Missouri Humanities mm -hmm. and also with the Campbell House Museum and with Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm really excited for that. It's on my calendar. Um, and we, we do um, an annual U.S. Grant Symposium that we've been doing. This will be our ninth year, so we're excited to help celebrate the bicentennial of, of Ulysses S. Grant this year too, and, and of course to link it to food always. <laughs> and what's a birthday without birthday cake? And exactly. Grant's favorite cake was ginger cake. <laughs> so yes, like like Suzanne said, we'll we'll be posting uh, more information about the Farm Table to Gilded Table event on our social media. Um, and then Suzanne, uh, kind of the last little bit, if people want to find your books to purchase or get in contact with you, um, what's the best way to support you or to engage with you? The uh, best way to support me, you can always find me on Facebook. Uh, you can always find my books at the different bookstores. I always drive them to the nonprofit bookstores, such as the Campbell House Museums shop, the History Museums bookstore the Eugene Field House Museum, but they're also available online at Amazon. But I prefer people to support Missouri sites. Well, let's keep more money in Mo. Exactly, exactly. Well, Suzanne, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, it's always great to talk with you. Who doesn't like to talk about food? Um, and, you, and you make it so fun. Um, so thank you so much for your time and your and your thoughtful reflections on on cookbooks, on cultural heritage, um, Missouri's food history, and, and everything in between. We're we're so grateful. Thank you for that, and I hope that everyone will enjoy savoring their own past. <laughs> well, another episode in the books, or should I say, cookbooks? <laughs> I really loved this one. It felt comforting and familiar to talk about things like cookbooks and popular foods during different times. And to do it with someone as warm and inviting as Suzanne was just the cherry on top. I agree. This was a really fascinating conversation, and I learned so much. I love Suzanne's passion for being a food historian. It was so interesting to learn about history through Suzanne's cookbook stories and to really think about the cultural significance of cookbooks. Thanks for tackling this topic, Caitlin. I hope our listeners enjoyed this episode as much as we did. 
Thank you to everyone listening for checking out our latest episode of Eat, Think, and Be Merry. If you're tuning in for the first time, we hope you go back and listen to our previous episodes for more stories that look at food and food ways through a humanities lens. To learn more about our 2022 signature series, visit mohumanities.org backslash food. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with friends, family, and on your social media platforms. If you're listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Lisa Carrico, and we hope you will tune in for future episodes of Eat, Think, and Be Merry as we explore more of Missouri's foodways and edible history and connect through food. Mm-hmm.